0: (laughs) Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody got their iPhones on? Thank you very much for coming, especially when there's so many other attractions. Um, None of them are as good a conversationalist, I have to say, as Mark is. He is terrific, and we're in for a very enjoyable hour and a half. Uh, Especially if you would oblige me with two things. Uh, The first is that uh, I asked Mark whether he'd been to Ballymaloo before, and he said no. Uh, He described himself as a Ballymaloo virgin. Uh, And so I've got to explain to Mark that we're not actually having a conversation in the grain store. We're having a conversation with the grain store. And the difference is that we don't, we discussed this last night, we don't want to wait for the end, towards the end of the, our session, for you to ask any questions. We'd like to encourage questions as we go along. Is that okay? Yes?
1: Good. Basically what you're saying is we haven't got enough things to talk about, so well, we might you to join in. You, uh,
0: <laughs> I don't know how, how many years we've <laughs> known one another, but I have never, ever known you lost for words. Correct. Good. So, <laughs> As long as it's interesting. <laughs> my first question is, and perhaps for the benefit of the audience, what is the ex- current extent of your empire?
1: Uh, seven, seven restaurants and I've got a little uh, eight bedroom b and right. which I opened in Lyme Regis. So I, my second restaurant was uh, just near my hometown in Dorset in Lyme Regis. And I suppose the... The thing is, people in, in the winter, it's very difficult you know, to sort of attract people, especially when it's blowing a gale and raining. Uh, so I, this little eight-bedroom townhouse came up on the market, and I thought I'd do a mini Rick Stein, if you like, okay. and um, just give, some, give, you know, give, the, give the people something else to come down for. <laughs> I saw Rick last week,
0: and he was just about to go off for the 40th anniversary of, his, of the seafood restaurant in Padstow, I know, which amazing, is incredible, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Forty years,
1: yeah. But there's something nice about, you know, and he's he's a very good example, I think, Rick Stein, of. You know, somebody who's made a very good reputation, um, both on TV and in in his own business. I think, you know, because I think a lot of people, you know, pursue a TV career and uh, their restaurants sort of get out the pan And I think Rick's a great example of someone that has done, kept both going, you know, very well. As have you. Yeah, but I don't do TV, though, you see. I've ne- always avoided it. <laughs> well, the Great British...
0: Oh, well, I, I did that, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a minor thing.
1: Well, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and I've uh, never pursued it since. And
0: <laughs> on the back of the eight restaurants and the B&B, there's how many cookbooks?
1: Cookbooks, there's uh, about eight or nine. I think eight, about eight or nine. Yeah. I've nothing in the... Pi- well, I've, I've sort of got one in the pipeline, which could be connected to cocktails as well. Ah. Oh. <laughs> so Because you sort of run out of things to write about in the end, you know, when you do quite a few cookbooks. And uh, because I've I've got, um, some of my restaurants have got cocktail bars. So I enjoy uh, creating cocktails with British spirits and British ingredients, infusions. So we quite often, you know, in the quince season, we, we infuse, like, gin with quince, for example, and then make a cocktail out of it. So... I'm giving my ideas away now. Yes. Uh, no. So I, I've got a sort of book in the pipeline that's going to involve, you know, British-based sort of drinks and cocktails, kitchen cocktails, if you like.
0: Right. You know. Oh, good, good. Um, and this is over how many years that you've started, man
1: and boy? Uh, well, I start. I, I moved to London about thirty thirty years ago. And that was the the started for Freez Holdings. We, well. After that, I started working... My first job was in the staff canteen at the Hilton, putting frozen peas in the steamer. Really? And then all my friends were working at the, uh, the fancy Dorchester Hotel and the Grosvenor House up the road. And then I eventually managed to get myself a job there and did that for a few years. And then Caprice, about... Uh, eight, it'd be 25 years ago now. did you started? Yeah. So when... Well, when Chris and Jeremy were just opening the Ivy... I went in as head chef at the Caprice. The, the head chef at the Ivy didn't work out, so they sort of gave me responsibility for both. And then we did Jay Sheiki. They decided to sell up. Yeah. Didn't do a very good deal. <laughs> Badly advised, I think. Yes. Um, but, you know, but they were great people to work for, and I think the... Uh, you know, out of all the restaurateurs that are still going, you know, they, they're always very inspirational and... Uh, you know, I think a lot of people would sort of, you know, back me up on that because still, still they're it's still Chris, doing Chris it. Chris
0: Corbyn and Jeremy King, who subsequently opened the Walsley and
1: the Beaumont Hotel. So I worked for the <coughs> 18 years with them. Well, not with them because they sold the business halfway through. Um, and Kevin, who's sitting at the back tweeting now, is one of my... So, Kevin's my right-hand man back there. And... <clears throat> Kevin was a, when I, when I was at the Caprice, Kevin was my chef de party and I'd just taken over the job at the Ivy. And chef, so chef de party is sort of four ranks down from being head chef. And Kevin was a bit of a star. And in between being a chef de party, there's sous chefs, which are sort of number two in command. And I remember taking Kevin, my uh, head chef was leaving and I didn't have any sous chefs that were sort of, budding head chefs so I took Kevin to the Groucho Club for about four hours and convinced him to be the head chef in the restaurant so overnight and quite a heavy hangover the next day I promoted Kevin to my head chef (laughs) and he's still with me (laughs) being able
0: to spot talent is an extraordinary aspect of being a head chef isn't it
1: yeah I think so and it's, um, it's not all about yeah, it's not all about the talent often, you know, I I always remember, I I sort of, I, I always didn't qualify for the job of head chef at the Caprice in those days, because there was loads of, you know, well-known head chefs out there, if you like, and uh, I used to always, before I joined um, Christian Jeremy, I used to go to Alistair Little a lot, and I always used to end up chatting to Alistair downstairs. He was
0: my first head chef.
1: Yeah, and... Just coincidentally, before, whilst I was in the interviewing process, I happened to be at Alistair Little's twice, talking to Alistair Little, when Chris was in there eating as well. So I think he thought, oh yeah, he's got a good uh, taste buds. <laughs> yeah, a good appetite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time as well, I think, it's important. Certainly London
0: has been the right place over the last 30 years, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, London's got, uh, you know, everyone says now it's like the gastronomic capital of the world, and I was, well, I was in France a few days ago and uh, at Chateau Margaux, and it, even there they said that London is the gastronomic capital, and for a Frenchman to say that, you know... It's <laughs> huh? It is, it is.
0: But would anybody <clears> like <throat> to disagree with the comment that Mark's just made about London being the gastronomic capital? I mean, obviously, Shannon Gary is over the weekend, but <laughs> anywhere... <clears throat> yes, the variety is what really, really it Yeah, is.
1: and you can eat anything almost at any time of the day in London, which is great. You know, there's... Uh, I think there's over 100... And I did count. There's over 120 different cuisines from different parts of the world available in London. Uh, so... Well, I don't, I don't think it does, really, because they, I, th- I think the only the problem with Paris is that it doesn't let other countries' cuisine into Paris, if you like. So if you want to go for a good, you know, Asian meal or Indian or, you know, even Italian, it's very difficult to find in Paris. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean, the other night, we, on, on our way to Bordeaux, we stopped, well, actually, no, in Bordeaux, we went to this Chinese restaurant, which actually wasn't very good, but had a fantastic wine list we were recommended it yeah <laughs> and jo- john who uh, was uh, leading our trip went down to the cellar which is actually a, a scruffy old storeroom and come back with you know his arms full of you know fantastic vintages so we had a you know a forgettable chinese meal but a memorable <laughs> <laughs> drinking with a experience. few good
0: bottles attached <laughs> yeah. but the thing that really killed french restaurants was the, th- the introduction of the 35 hour week because you know, I, I, perhaps it's a better question for Kevin, but how many hours do you work in the hospitality <coughs> business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're quite, you know, kind to our staff, if you like, because they only sort of do about six shifts. Um, and, I've and that's an eight-hour shift. Yeah, well, eight, eight to ten, really. You know, yes. <coughs> There's no sort of t- timescale on shifts in kitchens and restaurants, really.
0: Do, do you all, are you all aware with how a kitchen shift will work
1: well there's there's two there's two (laughs) there's two different ones there's the straight shift which is sort of seven in the morning till maybe five in the evening or some restaurants regard a straight shift as seven in the morning till about midnight (coughs) and a a five day week is, is five of those yeah so yeah different kitchens for different things but you know it's I suppose some of the, you know, the very famous chefs, you know, they attract people that would do that for nothing.
0: Mm. On on a stage or on a a, a three-month apprenticeship. In fact, if you go into quite a lot of the very top uh, Michelin-starred restaurants in France, they are full of Asian chefs who come over to work for three months for nothing, to go back to 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 be able to say that they've done that on their CV. But in most commercial kitchens in London... It will be five shifts, either during the day, one week, followed yep. by a week of night shifts the following week, and then you switch around. But the point I'm trying to make is that to be a good cook, to put in the, all the work that's necessary, you, you will put in a 60-hour week, won't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that, that's sort of an average week, I would say, but there's, you know, there are a lot of kitchens where you end up working you know, half of that again. Uh, I, I was quite fortunate, I think, working at the, uh, the Dorchester when we, we had these amazing shifts where we'd have four, we'd do a few doubles, like three doubles, and then we'd um, have four days off. So we'd have a long weekend every other week. Gosh. Which was kind of nice because I think the important thing in the, the restaurant business is balancing the lifestyle and the work because uh, you can get really engrossed in you know, working in a hot, sweaty kitchen for days and hours on end not balancing up the, the social side of it and I think that you know the social side is obviously the fun thing as well in the business uh, you know meeting other people in the business and whatever or customers and I think a lot of what I did earlier was um, about you know what I was saying, being in the right place at the right time a lot of time in the Show Club obviously <laughs> 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 which isn't a bad thing uh, but yeah, I, I think the social element of it is great. You know, if you end up at a dinner party, and people normally hour invite you a few hours earlier than the other guests arrive, because you don't get advice <laughs> to, to give them a hand. Yeah. Because our, our <laughs> son's just opened his,
0: his second restaurant in January. Which is fantastic, um, by the way. Yeah. Well, we haven't seen him. You know, that's, that's the downside. It's great that he's getting all these reviews and so on, and he's very busy, but it is all or nothing. Yeah. Uh but that was what happened to French restaurants. They found that they couldn't cope with this legislation other than by either closing for certain days to accommodate the 35-hour week or having to employ twice as many people, which makes it fundamentally un- unprofitable. Yeah. Yes, I think what seems to be suffering
1: in the Paris here is this. Mm. Yeah, i it, it's true, yeah. In in Pari- if you go to a Parisian restaurant, you know, th the, they don't talk about provenance at all, no. do they? Or uh anywhere in France comes to that. You know, I d I don't know why. Um the, it's all the same. I mean every restaurant has the same dock. I'm sure it's packaged from the same. Place. Yeah. Yeah, like poulet de Bresse is about the only thing you ever see any provenance on, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and
0: that's so expensive you can't afford to put it exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
1: But no, it's very true, and I think they. <coughs> I think it's interesting because years ago, you know, when we all used to sort of try and write our menus in French, that was being um, given a bit of flair to your menus, if you like. But now the flair in menu writing has really given the customer the provenance and a bit more information about the the ingredients themselves no not at all I, I think it's a for me i think it's a natural thing to do you know t- you you can't build a menu without actually having but that's a philosophy
0: that you started isn't it it's an approach you started yeah. what, 15 years ago yeah, yeah and you built up some pretty
1: strong I think I, when i started writing about food as well that was when it came into play yeah. more more often because you The funny thing is, when you start writing about food, people send you things all the time. So you're constantly getting things in the post or uh, producers are coming to you, you know, to put things on the menu, which is, you know, it saves you sort of trawling around the country or Googling for new producers or going to farmer's markets. So, you know, I I think that side of it, and and it sort of comes quite naturally in the end. Uh, So, you know, when Kevin and I are bouncing emails around uh, because one of our head chefs may have left off the provenance of, you know, one of the second main ingredient in the dish, or something. You know, and e- even our menu now for tomorrow, uh, for tomorrow lunch, we're doing um, a lunch in the house, and we're still um, scraping around for a bit more provenance on the menu. So we went into the garden this morning um, because they grow lots of uh, different salads and herbs, and we ended up picking the stuff that they haven't um, intentionally grown. So we were picking pennywort off the walls in the garden, which grows wild. <laughs> and that'll be in, in, the, in the salad, salad. tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so probably we'll do a bit more foraging later on and uh, add yeah. some, a bit more wording and provenance to the menu.
0: So and for the audience, what is tomorrow's menu?
1: OK, so tomorrow... Other, other
0: than the pennywort. Of other tea.
1: than the pennywort. So we're doing an oyster and bacon stew. So, so the idea of tomorrow's menu really is uh, to sort of showcase... Um, you know Irish ingredients so uh, for a f- few years now we've sort of done an oyster and bacon stew with. Uh, and uh, in fact even today we, I was, I was going to do um, years ago when I did my British regional book I visited Fingal uh, Ferguson who d- d- has a fantastic um, smokehouse and uh, we were going to use his bacon and like, this morning I said to Kevin are we okay for the bacon he said no it's a bit too smoky we're going to change what was it what's, what's the new bacon? There we, yeah, so we so we've changed so we've changed the menu even this morning really.
0: Uh, it's Kerrygold bacon by the yeah, way. Oh yeah, F- F- Everything is cooked in Kerrygold. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's a new range. Basted with it. Yeah, bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we're doing a, a salmon salad uh, with asparagus. So we, we're doing some shaved asparagus and uh, some cooked asparagus. So you get two different textures. And then one of my favourite producers at the moment, and we have exclusivity to his beef in London, is Peter Hannon, who's based just outside of Belfast. H
0: A, I just need to write this
1: down. N A N. So he, he, a few years ago, uh, when I first opened the Chop House, he was there with a group of chefs from Ireland. And uh, we're outside having a cigarette, and he came up to me he and said, he said, Mark, I think your beef's good, um, but I can do a lot better. And he said, I'll, I'll invite you to Ireland. So for, for a whole year, nothing happened. And then I got, suddenly got a phone call one day. He said, Mark, I think I'm ready for you. <laughs> oh. So he invited me over to Ireland. And what he'd done is he built, um, in, in, his, in his fridge where he hangs his meat, he'd built um, a wall out of Himalayan salt bricks, um, which I'd never seen before. And he told me all about it, that the salt, um, it kills the... So when you hang a piece of beef, the, when it gets very sort of... Um, mouldy on the outside, yeah, it's not very good for the beef, so, this, so the salt kills off the bad bacteria which create the mould, and it almost conditions the air, uh, so it encourages the good bacteria and kills the bad bacteria, so you can hang your meat for, you don't need to hang it longer, but uh, you don't get all that waste on mm. the outside. So he's now got three or four um, frid, you know, hanging fridges full of uh, the beef that we have exclusive rights for in, in London. And the only retailer is Fortnum and Mason. And he's always, he's a bit of an experimental butcher, if you like. And uh, he did these this sugar pit bacon. So it's basically basically um, molasses, sugar and spices and salt that he put these bacon ribs in. And I said to him, do you think you could do it with beef? And he said, yeah, of course. So like the Jacob's Ladder, which is the the bit above the beef rib, which you have for your Sunday lunch, um, which has got you know, lovely nuggets of meat either side of it. I said, can you try putting some of those in the, um, in the sugar pit, which he did and he experimented, and they're fantastic, and we're serving them tomorrow. So it's almost like a sort of salt beef, slightly sweet cure piece of meat. So that's our menkels with uh, a sort of warm potato and green onion salad. And then... Then you can use the molasses for the dessert. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then dessert we're using buttermilk. Uh, so we're making the buttermilk pudding, just a set pudding. And buttermilk's f- made on the, the dairy here, and with sea buckthorn. So sea buckthorn's a wild uh, berry. It, if you didn't know what it was and you tasted it, you'd think it was somewhere between a mandarin and a passion fruit. And it grows wild all, all along our coastlines. And it was uh, originally introduced in the 1800s as a as a sea defence because the the the, um, the branches are very very thorny and it grows um, in a very sort of tight bush, uh, and it's a sea defence for you know to stop sheep and things you know wandering off onto the beaches and stop predators coming in the, to the farmland. The French, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's our menu for tomorrow which we're still developing. Yes. We'll probably find something else later on to add <laughs> to the menu.
0: <laughs> Anybody got any questions they'd like to put to Mark while we're
1: And the one thing Ireland is grateful for is, is its cheese, I think. You know, you know, I've great pleasure in telling the French how great our cheeses are here. Yeah. And a lot of Dutch cheesemakers over here making, you know, fantastic cheese. Yeah, Um,
0: and a question that relates to the kind of state of the restaurant market, because we both started out uh, at a time when there were very few restaurants,
1: Mm. Uh,
0: but when the market was very small as well, there were fewer people who went to restaurants. Today, there are far more restaurants, but the market is much, much larger. And I had lunch with Jesus from the Caprice, uh, who has run it for 30-odd years, and who is this wonderfully genial uh, Bolivian, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. And he has a very soft, gentle voice, and we were sitting opposite each each other, and he said to me, you know, he leaned forward, and he said, you know, Nick, one thing I've learned about the restaurant business over the last 30 years is that it's getting better and better for the customer. And harder and harder for the restaurateur. Mm, that is, absolutely. And is that something you'd agree with?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you know, when I was working at the Caprice, the um, you could count on one hand all of the restaurants that were going to open that year. Uh, and I remember there was, <coughs> you know, places like 190 Queensgate mm. opening. Everyone was getting excited about it, you know. And now, uh, yeah, I, I lose track. You know, restaurants have been open for a few months and I've not even heard of them yet, mm. you know, so it's, fa- it's, it's very difficult to keep up with all the new places, that, well, opening and closing, even, and obviously that dilutes the quality of staff that are available, because on the educational side, you know, there's not extra catering colleges being yeah. built, I mean, I, I've just opened a Hicks Academy in Weymouth at my, my old catering college, um, to try and do exactly that, but even so, you know, there's not enough interest. How many will,
0: that start, that's opened?
1: Yeah, that opened last August. And it's, um, it's a catering college. It's the, it's, the, it's the old college I used to go to. And they have allowed me to sort of build an up-to-date uh, restaurant. And, you know, there's a cocktail bar, so the students actually learn how to make proper um, current-day cocktails. You know, the nearest thing we made at college on the cocktail front was a gin and tonic. <laughs> so these guys are making, you know, Negronis and Espresso Martinis and Manhattans. Uh, and they're all t- too young to drink them, fortunately. But uh, at, at least, it, at least it primes them up. And, and uh, you know, the government threw some money at it, so we've used lots of elements of the restaurant, um, the look of the restaurant in the actual restaurant there itself, and used the art department to put, you know, to make work for the restaurant. Uh, so it's it's kind of one of its, you know, one of a kind, really. And uh, but even though it's tough, you know, just tough getting those students to. Mm.
0: And how many students? There's uh,
1: 60 in total, yeah. yeah. So this is the first year, um, but hopefully it'll get a bit of a name and, uh, you know, attract
0: more. And But 60 is only enough to staff a couple of restaurants, uh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's
1: if they stay, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's uh, if they hang on in there.
1: Yeah, but we're doing some interesting things there. So we've got our own little smokery there, uh, and we send the students out working with producers and suppliers and fishermen, you know, there's an oyster farm locally, so... Uh, It's kind of completely the reverse of when I I was at college, almost, you know, which the the industry needs, I think. So, and then they come out and do placements in different restaurants. But yeah, there's not enough staff to go around. And and you do end up employing people that have never worked in industry before. So people that have gone into, you know, whatever, graphic design or whatever, and they suddenly, you know, get bored of that and see the popularity in food and start to, you know, work in restaurants. Mm. Because actually a lot, of, I mean, when we started up, a lot of those people like Alistair and those guys, they didn't really start off in the restaurant world, did they? they no. Were, you know, university.
0: Well, the restaurant business in London, when we moved into it, was kept alive because there were French and Spanish and Italians and Swiss and German. Yeah. Who would, this is in the 80s, who, for whom it was then a part of their way of life. It was a career. And they came over. A lot of a lot of the Swiss came over to work in the hotels, yeah, and the restaurants, yeah. and
1: so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was working at the the Dorchester and the Grosvenor House. I, I was one of the only chefs that had never been to Switzerland to right. work, because it, it was sort of almost part of the thing you did then, wasn't it? You, you know, you'd have to go and work in Switzerland for six months, um, and I just never got around to doing it. I suppose.
0: Yeah. Because uh, no, my restaurant was in Soho, in, and we had this association called the Soho Restaurateurs Association, and I remember one meeting, sitting down with them at uh, early evening and looking round the table, and I was the only Englishman round the table, Yeah, you know, in a, in a part of London that was supposedly quintessentially
1: English. But and it's funny, because that doesn't exist now, does it? No. Because I was talking to a licensing officer the other day, and I said, uh, you know, whatever happened to the Soho Restaurateurs Association? And, and now there's, like, you know... Probably thirty times as many, many restaurants yeah. in Soho, but it's not a Soho restaurant. Well, so it was Soho. because
0: there was one man, Peter Boyzo, yeah, who started uh, Pizza Express. That yeah. was his. Yeah. But I, w- I, wonder, looking at your career, uh, whether it would have been quite as successful had you had a less unusual surname.
1: Well, Hicks, a good Hicks is a great <coughs> name,
0: isn't it? Mm. And and you have one restaurant called Hickster, mm. which you must have had great fun conceiving and working of and so
1: on and so yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, the, originally when, when I first opened um, or, or left the Caprice Group to open my first one in, uh, in Smithfield Market I was sort of scratching which my head. Which is the Chop House. Which yeah, is still Hicks, going. Oyster and Chop House. Yep. And I was um, sort of scratching my head wondering what to call it. And uh, my business partner Ratnesh and Joe my assistant who uh, came with me uh, they said, oh, you've got to call it Hicks. And I, I didn't want to call it Hicks. Uh, and then they sort of convinced me to call it Hicks. And then everyone said, oh, God. Well, you know, people who didn't know me thought I'd made the name up because it's just mm-hmm. H-I-X. And uh, even at Freeze Art Fair, when we do the uh, the restaurant there, I'd, I was there one day and we have a, um, an H-I-X neon in the tree in the middle of the restaurant. And I saw these Germans looking up saying, ah, H-9. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, it's, it's become... And, and also, it's very easy to sort of brand things with yes. a simple name. Yeah. And Names are
0: terribly important, aren't they, in yeah. restaurants? And people don't realise
1: uh, quite how... Yeah, and it's, all, you know, it's pretty much by default. And, and, and then when I did the Tram Shed, which is our chicken and steak restaurant in the East End, it's it's actually an old Victorian Tram Shed, about twice the size of this room, or three times the size of this room, uh, I didn't call it Hicks purposely, uh, because it's such a lovely building and it is a Victorian tram shed, and, and that's just you know w- without even putting my name to it, it's become you know the bi- well it's the size of it, it's busy anyway, but it's just round in there, you know, and probably the Damien Hirst car in the middle has got it's something to do does, with it. <laughs> <does hold. laughs> I actually use that more as a um, that I think that's the marketing element of it, you know. Uh, I, decide, I decided to, um, when I was working with the architects, I, I walked into a site meeting one day and uh, the architect had moved the mezzanine into the middle of the restaurant and said, uh, what do you think? And I said, no, it's not going to look like people sitting above you in a restaurant. I think we need a sculpture. So I've known um, Damien Hirst for a few years. So I, I literally texted him in the meeting. I said, I, I, said, I need a sculpture for my new chicken and steak restaurant. And two days later, he came back with this image of a, a cow in formaldehyde with a chicken on its back. And uh, I sort of showed it to my, my business partner, Ratnesh, who's uh, Indian, and he, he looked at it and shook his head and he said, uh, if you put that in the restaurant, I'm never going to eat there, because obviously their religion, they don't eat beef. You know? <laughs> so he had to have a word with his parents. And they said, look, you know, if you're going to open a steak restaurant, <laughs> you know, you need to do something like that. You need to change the way you eat. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we went ahead and Damien made this. Uh, uh, it's, it's literally a whole cow in formaldehyde with a chicken on its back, and that sort of sits in the middle of the restaurant. And it's funny, so to this day, the farmer who supplied the cow still, didn't, still doesn't know where it ended up. <laughs> 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 so, he, he would, um, so Damien's assistant, Ollie, who does all the formaldehyde stuff, he, um, he said, right, Mark, we need to find a cow. And um, I, I just started working with Peter Hannon, who I was talking about earlier, and I said, Peter, I need a cow, but it needs to be whole. So Peter thought I was doing some sort of butchery demonstration or something, you know. And, uh, and I copied in Ollie from um, the company called Science, who does all the formaldehyde stuff. And um, it took about—I I was watching the email flow—and it, it took about three or four emails for Peter to realise actually where this cow was <laughs> going to end up. So he was—he was sending all these photographs of you know these cows that are on the way to the knacker's yard. So I didn't want the—I didn't want the piece to be you know a, a cow to be killed for the for the actual art installation. Uh, so the farmer doesn't know where it ended up. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure
0: you'll find out one day. But as well as the art. and the the menu, I mean, what's been extremely successful about Tramshed has been your move into Shoreditch. And I mean, that was right at the outset, wasn't it? I mean,
1: what was that space when you were shown it? Well, it was, I used to live in Shoreditch around the corner and I used to walk past that building every day. And it was a a storage place, a storage depot. And occasionally it was open as a sort of, um, for parties and things. Uh, And it took me a year to get planning and a license make it into... So all all my old neighbours from when I used to live there were petitioning against Against us getting a bloody licence. And and also, it's it's quite risky, the thought of opening a 150-seat restaurant in an area that's not... Well, it's affluent, but not, you know, in in a slightly unknown area with a bloody great cow in the middle of the restaurant. (laughs) It's quite a scary thought. Uh, But, you know, it it sort of worked. And and I think, you know, it's a good example of, you know... um, Pairing down the restaurant, the, the menu to you know to just having—I mean, Sally Clark did it years ago, where there was no choice. Yeah, in Clark's restaurant, where in, in the tradition of Alice, who was yeah, sitting here exactly. before yeah. us, yeah. And over the years, you know, restaurants like um, the, uh, you know, the Entrecote in Paris, I suppose, and the English version, which I keep forgetting the name of, the uh, one in Marley Yes, Oeuncot.
0: Uh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
1: And uh, and then Burger and Lobster, you know, opens, and it, you know, there's always a queue outside, and I just thought to myself, okay, well, chicken is popular, chicken is popular, steaks popular, and you know, let's do that, and I, I, and I think it's one of those things that you know you wouldn't normally think about as a restaurateur, you know, just limiting the menu to just two ingredients, uh, but you know, it's sort of proved it's proved the point. I think it's been very successful. Yeah, you took. Yes. <laughs> well, <coughs> yes, interesting. So when we first opened, I was introduced to this chicken farmer who didn't produce many chickens, and I said to him, "Look, could you produce, you know, enough chickens for my new restaurant?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, of course." And I, I was slightly, slightly sceptical whether we could or not, but they were fantastic chickens. You know, the, probably the closest thing you get to a a poulé de breast. And Does sure enough... Where is he? Well, he was up in uh, Gloucestershire. all right, and, um, and after six months, I had to drop him because, you know, having a chicken and steak restaurant and suddenly on a Friday, he tells you that... There's no chickens. There's no chickens. is a bit of a problem. <laughs> so then I had to go back to the person I've used for years and years, uh, Reg Johnson, up in Goosner, yeah, in Preston. Uh, so I had to go back to him and say, listen, you know, can you supply me with 2,000 chickens a week or whatever? Uh, and he said yes, so we started using him. And, and then I said, look, I, I want a specific breed of chicken, that, um, not the n- normal chickens you do, because you know no one actually puts the prov- uh, the the the, um, the breed of, of chickens on the menu. You know, you see free-range chicken, you say organic chicken. Um, so he's he's got this breed called Indian Rock chicken. So I, I think we're, we're one of the few people to ever put the breed of chicken on the menu as well. Because I don't know, people just don't ask, or they you know. But it's interesting, people say, oh, what's Indian you what? Know, it's, it's the breed. It's a you know, good breed of chicken for the table. So. Uh, just the way the meat, you know, I mean, all, all good chickens, really, you know, the, the, the flavours in the legs, really. And these aren't even classified as free-range, but they are free-range, if you like, because I've been to some of the best free-range chicken farms in the country, and all the farmer does is leave, leaves the doors open... And all the chickens stay inside, they don't bother going out. They don't go out, yeah. It's wet. Yeah. Could be wet. Yeah. And, you know, so a lot of the free-range chickens, they just stay put, you know, stay up in the rafters or whatever. So, uh, yes, but it's it's nice to sort of be able to name the breed of chicken. Do you ever have nightmares about chickens?
0: (sighs) No. Or beef? (laughs) No. Good, good, good. I'm sure they have nightmares about you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But I did, when I first opened, you know, having this tank in the middle of the restaurant, I thought we were going to get sort of animal rights protesters throwing buckets of, you know, red paint at the yeah. windows. But, so I had sort of security on the door to begin with, it, but it didn't ever happen, so I <laughs> couldn't find it. Uh, well, a philosophy for sourcing ingredients. Um, you know, so everything, apart from our wine, is British and olive oil. Mm. <laughs> uh, and they, the, the menus are different in all of the restaurants, so it's not, I don't sort of follow the same pattern, because these days you have to be quite, uh, you know, competitive with what other people are doing as well. Uh, So I sort of swap and change the menus quite often. You know, pricing is always important. uh, Because, you know, especially in Soho, you know, what we were saying earlier is, you know, there are so many, um, I've lost count of how many, you know, Japanese noodle bars there are, which are all great, uh, but it's nice to sort of see, you know, different um, options now for people. Because I think when... When you first opened in Soho, it was just a bunch of Italian restaurants yep. you were surrounded by. You know. Yes. They've almost all gone there, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, I mean,
0: if you ask me what's oh. really the lacuna in London restaurants, it's a really, really good Italian trattoria. Yeah, yeah. They and just don't exist.
1: And, and Soho was full of them, wasn't it? Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: And where Hicks is now selling steaks was a Japanese restaurant.
1: Yeah, which failed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it, you know, it's being in the restaurant business and jumping on the back of someone failing is sometimes, you know, <laughs> luckily an essential. Yeah. You know, someone that spent three million pounds on a restaurant, and I ended up paying two hundred thousand premium for it. Uh, and it had the most beautiful sushi bar in the it basement, did, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. yeah. But you
0: never wanted to go there. No, exactly. And mm. now it's a, it's
1: a huge bar. bar. Yeah. And I've I've kept the sunken sushi bar because the idea of the sushi bar, it was sunken behind the counter, and so that the sushi guys were always eye level with the customers sitting there. So I didn't have much money to spend, so I sort of kept it as it was and just put a zinc top over the glass sushi counter. And everyone thought, and, and it was all refrigerated. All the marble behind it was refrigerated, so I used that for keeping the cocktail glasses cold. And uh, everyone thought I'd designed this special um, Mm. cocktail bar with refrigerated (laughs) stuff, And all I'd done was stuck a bit of (laughs) pewter over the top of the glass. So yeah, sometimes by default, you end up with things. And and, and I've managed to sort of copy it as much as possible. I mean, in in my new, my newest restaurant, um, it was an old tin factory. And in the basement, there was a a big tank where they used to dip the uh, tin. tin. And so the minute I saw it, I thought, ah, okay, I'm going to reuse that. as the cocktail bar like Soho. So the the cocktail bar, I'm going to be, you know, just slightly below where the customers are sitting. So it's become a bit of a theme. It's not always possible to sort of start digging holes in the past.
0: (laughs) Yes, I always think that if you ever want to, if you ever have children who you need to furnish a flat for, look out for a restaurant that's just about to open. Keep your eye on it, because about... Three or four weeks after it's opened, there will be new furniture, which they have bought because the architect said had to be there, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they've realised it's completely the wrong furniture. It's in the wrong place. It's doing the wrong job. The custom. I mean, I had to do the same. I know this from p- a very painful experience. But you know, it's it is a fact of restaurant life that you get rid of yeah. often the most expensive no, I, stuff. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I had loads of this lovely leather furniture that um, the previous owner had got specially made. And it coincidentally, it was made by, um, or designed by a friend of mine. And so I managed to keep quite a lot of it. It was like sort of, you know, interesting leather, sort of modern bonquets. Uh, but, you know, eventually it just fell apart. Mm. It, wasn't it wasn't made. It was designed for a restaurant, but not made. For a restaurant use,
0: know.
1: yeah. So all the bar stores I had to get new legs on all sorts. <laughs>
0: I was just going to ask, uh, how do you avoid, like, food fashion? And, uh, you know, it seems to me as though in London, other places, certain restaurants were more like theatre than they were about food. Do you think that has influenced <coughs> you, or have you avoided it, or what?
1: Yeah, I think so. The I, I often get asked, you know, what's going to be the next food trend? And it's quite difficult to sort of think of something that hasn't, you know, I I think, you know, probably the latest thing is Korean food, I'd say, in London, isn't it? You know, there there were no or hardly any Korean restaurants for ages, but you sort of need to, yeah, I I think you need to keep abreast of it, but I think sometimes it's quite important to stay with what you do or what you believe in, rather than try and follow a trend, because we've all seen over the years, you know... uh, Foam and all sorts of stuff that, you know, chefs try and copy and don't quite understand how, you know, I I think when, you know, a lot of proteges that have come out of, say, Heston Blumenthal's kitchens and have tried to emulate it, uh, you know, don't always get it right, you know, and I think there's a certain way or certain understanding why people do things in a certain way, uh, but then emulating it without understanding why they, you know, they did it difficult so I think it's quite often important to sort of stay with what you believe in um, but obviously have a bit of an open mind you know I had a a conversation with Kevin this morning and the uh, the old um and being in France as well you know the old sorted caramel thing appears on almost every menu menu. but it's it's something that people like to eat you know it's, it's it's a great flavor and um there was another chef on the trip with me and um and a hotelier who I, I go fishing with quite often and we were sort of winding up our friend and uh, seeing how many times how many different restaurant menus there would be sorted caramel on and w- we were at uh, I, think, I think it might have been Chateau Margot actually <laughs> and right at the last thing they, they brought these petit fours and the waiter was describing what they were and uh, it was um, caramelised I can't remember nuts or something and uh, I said uh, avec sel de mer and he went so you know it's it's in everything now and we we do like a salted caramel fondue and I was just saying to Kevin this morning I said we need to think of another name because it's just it just gets very repetitive now you know the the old salted caramel thing but you know quite often it works because customers like it and they see it you know well some people I
0: know one of whom is in the audience and happens to be my wife are addicted to it Mm,
1: yeah it does it is intravenous
0: would be uh, yeah we're not quite not quite swift enough. It, yeah,
1: and it's difficult. And, and I bet you, I, I said to Kevin, "Can not we call it something like Cornish sea salt fudge fondue or something?" But it's not quite got the same ring to it. And you know, you'd have all sorts of complaints if you took it off yeah. the menu. So yeah, and that, that I suppose that is, you know that is—I suppose that is one of the sort of fashionable things that people tend to latch onto and and follow. That actually, you know, will be with us in years to come. I think Cause it's it's quite a new. I don't even know who invented it, actually. What, you? salted caramel? The salted caramel. Yeah, well, I hope somebody hasn't patented it. Yeah. You know, because they've missed been out on a fortune. It would have been a mad chocolatier, probably, yeah. that um, probably come up with it, you know, to the salted caramel bar or something. But, yeah, no, it's everywhere. <coughs> yeah. You touched on... Where's that bottle of wine, anyway, that your yes, wife is going to get?
0: Yes, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> uh, we'll...
1: We said d- yesterday, we said, uh, God, we're... we're I talked for half. an hour and a half. I said, yeah. wait, we need some nice wine to wash it down with. Yeah. <laughs> Have you not been to Odd Bins? <laughs> <I'm not here. laughs> you- yes. as a British cuisine, would you like to try to define it? Well, yeah, interesting, because people often say, "What? how do you describe your cuisine? And it, it is British. Um, but when you if you if you talk to uh and maybe an American for example it 's never traveled to England you know their their idea of British is fish and chips and roast beef but there's much more to it than uh than that you know whether it's an old um, recipe that 's been you know dug up from the eighteenth century or whether it 's something very simple as a good british ingredient you know i mean there's lots of things like Shepherd's pie, for example, which the French do a version of hashish parmentier. Uh, You know, lemon meringue pie, which is kind of an American thing. There's a chester pie, which is almost identical. um, Burnt cream is very similar to, you know, a creme brulee, yeah. Uh, Wherever it started off, Mm. you know, is an interesting conversation. But, you know, I I think you can invent... uh, sort of new British cuisine, if you like, you know, based on ingredients. And in some ways, you know, I think British cuisine is very simple, very similar to, um, you know, sort of peasant Italian food, if you like, um, you know, minus the pasta and rice. Uh, you know, one or two ingredients on the plate uh, just cooked very simply. So, I, you know, I, I suppose there's several definitions of, you know, what British food is, you know, there's the old classics, whether it's Lancashire Hot Pot or Shepherd's Pie or Lobscoose and things like that Uh, and then there's the things that everyone in the whole world knows, roast beef and fish and chips and then there's the new style of, you know, British cuisine Yeah, sort of modern British, but you know Yeah Yeah You're right, but I, I look at I look at some menus that Claim to be modern British, and you see foie gras on them and things, you know. And I think it's, it, it's such a loose term that people, you know, especially journalists have you know put, a, um, put restaurants in the modern British bracket, if you like. But uh, and people just use the name over and over again, and you look at their menus, and there's hardly any English provenance on there. So I don't know. It's a loose. It's a loose name that's uh, been sort of invented by. You know, like, like a, like a gastro Hmm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> dessert, plums, it's like a deconstructed plum, and it's got
0: Ah, yes. Uh, it's ah,
1: someone's got one of my books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's, yeah, and that's a good use in the sea, you know, because plums are in the se- season the same time as the cob nuts, So that's a, probably a good example of using, you know, something that's seasonal, but it's not a traditional British dish. You probably need to put more sugar on it. That's why I didn't taste it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that problem solved.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, honey. <laughs> But I, I, think, I think there is a, a kind of strong connection between restaurants need a buoyant economy mm. to thrive. Yeah. And then once they start thriving, they throw up these chefs, such as of which you're a prime example, who give everybody else the confidence to carry on and rediscover yeah. uh, and the, tr- the, the, the culinary tradition. And... Actually, it's a kind of really interesting example of the difference between what's happening in England and France at the moment. You know, their economy is poor, their restaurants are poor, and they're not throwing up the chefs who are uh,
1: saying, standing up for French cuisine. Yeah, yeah. And there's, very, you know, you get very, very few French chefs coming to London these yeah. days. You know, I remember when I sort of first started in London, and, th- you know, that there was a lot of Germans and a lot of French chefs working in the kitchens, uh, because a lot of the head chefs would only employ, or well, would rather employ, you know, French, German or Swiss chefs, you know, over British chefs. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think for that reason of reputation, really, uh, because they were, would be more confident that a, a French chef or German chef could cook, you know, better than a British chef. Yeah. Uh, and now it's kind of the other way round, really. So,
0: One person you touched on earlier, but perhaps you could explain a little bit more about his role, is Ratnesh. Yeah. Who is your business partner. Yeah, so... Has been for a long time. Yeah, since day one, yeah. Since day one. So we
1: worked together. So he was finance director at um, Caprice Group. Uh, And we worked together for maybe eight years or something. And he left uh, before I did. And for about three or four years, he kept saying to me, oh, we should do a restaurant together. And I said, yeah, but we haven't got any money, you know, to do it. And he said, well, you know, let's try and find a cheap site to do it in. And, and uh, just one day, just by chance, this restaurant in Smithfield Market came up. It landed on my email, and I said to Ratna, so I said, I, I think we've got something. And we didn't even have to, we just borrowed a little bit of money from the bank, really, because uh, neither of us had any capital. And uh, so it came up, and I, I remembered the restaurant from... My, one of my fishmongers was when Smithfield wasn't really that developed, uh, was opposite there in uh, Greenhill Rents and it had been a restaurant called Rudland Stubbs for years, and I think we picked it up for uh, fifty thousand premium it or definitely. something, yeah. and the rent was about the same price, so we sort of scrambled a few quid together each and did it, and opened it, and that's you know that's when you know what should we call it came up. And I've just written my book, British Regional Food. And uh, I did quite a big section on London. And, you know, in the 1800s, uh, oysters... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: Thank you very much. And now That's one for all the audience, salad. please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and in, in the 1800s, oysters were <coughs> more or less uh, street food, you know, because they used to be brought up the Thames from the ethics estuaries, and street traders would be flogging oysters on the street, really cheap, and uh, that's, that's, that's how the oyster and beef pie came up, because they would replace beef with oysters, because it was cheaper than the beef itself. And there was, the only, uh, the only sort of eating houses in the 1800s were really chop houses and um, taverns, and the chop houses were a bit sort of plusher and they plusher. had, you know, bigger cuts of meat and things, so I thought, you know, oyster houses have almost disappeared. Uh, Corrigan had just opened, Bentleys at the time, and the Wright Brothers brothers had just opened uh, the Wright Brothers Oyster Bar in Burr Market. But all the old oyster bars had kind of disappeared, so I thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity to do an oyster and chop house. Uh, And it was in a sort of grungy back street where they would probably have sold oysters (laughs) in those days in the meat market. And it's about 100 yards from
0: the meat market. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Yeah, it's very close. And I remember telling Fergus in the Groucho Club one night, I said, I'm just about to open opposite you. Um, And I think this is where, you know, friendly rivalry or competition comes in. And Fergus didn't stop chuckling for about five minutes (laughs) (laughs) in the way way he does. And, and, uh, you know, when you have sort of friends and you're going to open across the road, you know, it's not seen as rivalry or competition, I think. So anyway, Ratnesh and myself ended up doing this restaurant together and we've kind of grown the business in a sort of... You know, we still regard our our business as a sort of family business in a way. Uh, How many do you employ? We've got 320 staff. Uh, And we've sort of just grown it on a bit of bank funding, reinvesting, cash flow. Uh, A lot of people think, you know, we have... Financial backers to do it, but we we've kind of got to a point where we haven't needed to. And if you overspend, you overspend. And you, I stopped paying myself a wage for six months because we'd overspent on the last project. Uh, but you know, but, but in your own business, you can do that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so it doesn't really And keep control. Yeah, yeah.
0: Cheers, yeah. cheers, everybody. <laughs>
1: Uh, sometimes too much. Sometimes not enough. Uh, I'm a great believer in not putting any more than three ingredients on the plate. Sometimes only one ingredient. Uh, in fact, when I opened the chop house, the, I think one of the, in the first week, um, I had dinner with Rick Stein and a few others, and Rick said to me, <laughs> he said to me that night, he said, "I think you've gone a bit too far this time." <laughs> because I, 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 if I do a steak, you, you get a steak on the plate, and you know you don't get anything else with it. And you know if you if you order a piece of grilled turbot, you get a piece of grilled turbot on the plate, and that's it. I said, "Do you think so?" He said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, y- "You don't put anything with your food, you know." And then, consequently, after that, you know we got some great reviews from people. And because uh, I, I think when I left the Caprice Group, everyone thought I was going to be cooking the same food as what I was doing at the Caprice. So I had to think of something different. So the ethos behind the chop house is that all the meat is served on the bone, so unusual cuts and chops. And the only, the only piece of meat we don't serve on a bone is a hanger steak uh, or anglais, but we serve it with a piece of stuffed bone marrow. Uh, so yeah, Rick, Rick's comment sort of you know backfired on I mean when he started reading um, okay. Adrian Gill's review. <laughs> So yeah, so as far as presentation, I think you know sometimes less is more. Is if more. You like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if, if if you can see the main, yeah, you, I, I think it's always important that when you read a menu or read a dish on a menu that you do end up getting what you, it says, because I think you know some American restaurants are very guilty of um, slightly overdoing the gilding the lily. Yeah, yeah. You so say three lines in, and you you know the farmer's name. The field that the sweet corn was grown in, you know, how finally the flour was grown. So I I think, you know, simplicity is uh, key. I was talking, sorry? sorry.
0: Preston company accepted. Yes.
1: (laughs) I don't know, it's an interesting one. I think in. Sometimes, you know, when, when you receive a bad review, um, sometimes actually customers all, you know, are curious to go there because they say it can't yeah. be that bad.
0: Yeah, it's a very British thing, isn't it?
1: And I, I remember when Adrian Gill right, um, wrote, did a review of what, what restaurant we did in Belgravia very briefly, which I'll move on to in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, you know, he, he normally starts off writing about himself for the first half of it. (laughs) And he said, uh, (laughs) the first line was, I'm sure Mark won't mind me giving him a bad review. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think, you know, I think in London, it's... I think reviews are always important. Uh, You know, if you do get a bad review, it's not because, you know, the food critic dislikes you, I think. Uh, It's because they've just been on a, you know... A bad day, which you know, we, the, you don't always get it right 100%. But I always quite like sharing the staff, you know, a bad review because uh, you know I think there's a lot to learn from it and just keep it on the notice board for, yeah, for a, a few, few days, months. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It can be a rallying, it can be a rallying cry, you know, it can help very much. Uh, but as a restaurateur who's had bad review, I know that you really what you need is a thick skin, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because you have to take it on, take it on the chin yep. and then remember you're going to open in a couple of hours and yep. do something about it.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that you know, they're always to learn from and <coughs> and also I th- the good thing with lots of uh, new restaurants opening these days, you're, you know, in the old days you would, you know, you would, everyone would review you within a few weeks. But there's so many restaurants <laughs> to go around there that are open. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a while for them to get to you. Time to to get it right. What do you do about TripAdvisor and those? Nothing. <laughs> TripAdvisor is an interesting one, isn't it? Well, the problem is, I think, if you. Unedited un- criticism, you know, is. You know, it's, it's allowed. You know, I am at Fish House, I was. I never liked to sort of take a table up in my own restaurant. And I was sat at the bar in the fish house because it was sort of busy. And there was a couple of guys sat behind me. And every time the waitress went past, she sort of nudged one of them. And I didn't realise what was happening. And uh, he started complaining. He he got up and left. And I think they'd been in before. And he started complaining. And I said, look, you know, don't don't worry. And I, I, I took his bill and... Sort of tore it up in front of him because he was really getting quite arsy about it, <coughs> and, I, and, and he that made him that made him even angrier, you know. And <laughs> he must have gone home in this rage and written um, written on TripAdvisor and it said, uh, "Mark Hicks told me to fuck off out of his restaurant," <laughs> which I didn't, <laughs> I wouldn't. But you know, so you know, you just and, I, and I, I witnessed you know me not throwing him out of yeah. the restaurant, uh, so. You know I, I think it's just I think you just don't need to take too much notice of it. Read it, let your staff read it, but you know, have on. an open mind yeah and like. have a life mm. <laughs> mm. oh, it did that way yeah <laughs> uh,
0: while we're on the subject of things that have not gone
1: so well, uh, what's been your biggest
0: professional mistake
1: uh, yeah well interestingly so I I was approached about three years ago to open a restaurant in a hotel in Belgravia. So, uh, there's a hotel in New York called 60 Thompson, which is a sort of small boutique hotel. And they asked if I'd do the restaurant and bar in their new hotel in Belgravia. So, we said yes. And it, it, it was quite a way down the line. It had almost been pre... Or sort of half-designed, if you like. And... We agreed to do it. We managed to tweak the design a little bit. Um, opened, uh, because it was in a part of town which, you know, we hadn't uh, got a restaurant or a Colonised already. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite an affluent area, Belgravia. You know, there's lots of <coughs> you know, very wealthy people living there, but what we discovered is a lot of those um, wealthy people that have houses in Belgravia don't actually ever live there. You know, The, the cleaners and housekeepers spend more time there than mm. the actual people that live there. So it was quite a difficult market to tap and you know a Tuesday night I'd be madly busy and a Wednesday night I'd be completely dead Uh, and we weren't particularly doing anything wrong and then we discovered after about six months we were losing money and luckily the the guy that owned the hotel our landlord um, hadn't was really slow giving us the 10-year lease to sign so six months in when it wasn't going so well we still didn't sign the lease so we started discussions with him and said, look, you know, it's not going so well. Uh, you know, we, can we pull out? You know, So it took us a few months of negotiation to convince him. And uh, even he believed that, um, actually, yeah, you know, wh- wh- why did they open this hotel in this area? And Thompson, who were the hotel um, operators, uh, ironically pulled out two months after we did. Oh, really? So the hotel is closed as well? No, the hotel is still open, but not run by... By Thompson. Thompson, yeah, and but we lost um, eight hundred thousand pounds in about eleven months, uh, and that's that's the net yeah. profit of yeah, you've got to you know, work two or three hard. of the other restaurants. So so basically, you know, uh, the other restaurants were subsidising Belgravia. Yeah. But <coughs> every two weeks, I do staff induction, and I'd, I I show slides of each of the uh, each of our restaurants to all the stu- all the new staff. That have started, but I still show um, Hicks Belgravia as an object lesson. Yeah, what and not to I, do. I tell them what I've just told you, and uh, you know, and I just say to them, you know, you're probably wondering why I'm showing you this because it doesn't exist. Uh, but it's a lesson in you know, not everything always works. Yeah. Uh, Despite the name. Yeah. So, and I think even now, wh- whatever's me, I don't know if you've been there, but someone else moved in and it didn't work. Really. <laughs> yeah. Well, bottom-line profit, if you're doing well, yeah. But the bottom-line profit is quite small. It is. But they're
0: very busy restaurants. They're large. They're open seven days a week, most yep. of them.
1: Yeah,
0: And, of course, they have a bar <coughs> attached, don't they? Yeah. And without the bar, they would make considerably less money. Yeah, yeah. Than
1: because the net profit in restaurants, you know, it, for every, you know, it's only between 10 and 20% yeah. bottom-line profit. So you have to do an awful lot of work to get to a you know, a the semi-decent gul- bottom-line profit. The
0: golden rule about profitability in restaurants is that it is inverse, in inverse proportion to the quality of food that's served.
1: Yeah, no, it is. The better yeah. the food,
0: the lower the profits.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it always amazes me that, you know, some restaurants, you know, it, it might, you know... You, you run a, a pizza restaurant, you know, where the costs... Yeah, you know, pizza, pizza restaurants are probably the ones that always have the best uh, bottom-line profit. But, what, but I was in this yeah. little tiny steak restaurant, which was a few days ago. It was in Paris, which was only, like, 20 seats. And the kitchen was behind where we would have put a bar, if you like, in the restaurant. And there was the, own, the owner and his son and one person in the kitchen. And they. it's quite interesting, because their menu... <coughs> was um, it was all steak and they were sort of normal priced steaks but they had one particular steak on there which was 250 euros for two people which has kind of inspired me because I saw quite a few of them being eaten around the room mm. and uh, I was with Russell Norman and we, we did some sums on the back of a fag packet um, of how much turnover they would do in a week and we after our sums on the back of a fag packet, you know, it's only like 20 seats. And uh, we thought, shit, you know, they, they're taking as much money here. So we took our bill and sort of divvied it up and times it by <laughs> 14 and uh, multiplied it up. And, you know, they're, they're turning over more money than we are, mm. you know, because they're, it's so small, but it's, it's quite unique, all the different cuts of steak and stuff. So the size of your restaurant often doesn't make, you know, an awful lot of difference. But then on the back of that, I went to... You've probably been to Sushi Tetsu in Clerkenwell. Have you been
0: there? No, I can't get in.
1: I know. There's there's this this new (laughs) restaurant called... And you can only book at certain times, for certain times. (coughs) Anyway, I I went there with Russell, and it's only got, um, I think, 11 seats. And they do one service at lunchtime, and sort of one and a half in the evening. And... Russell and I chose the most expensive menu and, you know, drunk lots of sake and spent maybe 250 quid. But the people next to us chose the cheapest menu, which I think was 50 pounds, and were drinking tea. And I'm sure at lunchtime, quite a few people do that. Yeah. And we sort of worked out that how much money that per year. And they, being Japanese, they don't open on Sundays or, you know, Mondays. And they, you know, we worked out that they would only make about thirty thousand a year probably running it themselves, husband and wife team in a in a year. So, you know, on the other extreme, you know, you don't go into the restaurant business. No. <laughs> <laughs> L- leave it to Mark. <laughs> and Kevin. Uh, I was just wondering like living in what's your kind of favourite place in yeast? Like we give me game not as like on a special occasion, but like you know you're probably shit started at night, you're just gonna want something. To do. Yeah I've th- it's interesting because I, I, I find myself constantly trying new places all the time, because there are so many new places that are opening all the time. So <coughs> yeah, I, I, you know there are old favorites like you know, St. John and places that I go to a lot, La Canda Locateli, but um, I, I, d- I do you know every week just find myself going to somewhere new, really. Uh, the places recently I 've been to, which I've loved are. Uh, is, it, is it pronounced Bow? bow in oh, did he get in? Yeah, I managed to get in on day because t- my ex-girlfriend does PR and she knew the PR person that was doing it, so we managed oh, to get sneaked into the corner. But that's very good. It's a tiny little place.
0: It's a place on Lexington Street that's been opened by the restaurateurs behind Jim mm. Carner, which is a very successful. But it is... Sorry? B-A-O,
1: isn't yeah, it? Yeah, ba- I think it's pronounced Bow. Ba- ba- and it just that.
0: specialises in...
1: in Buns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Karim from Jim Carter was back to them, I think, yes. or something. But Jim Carna, you know, is a great restaurant. You know, that's one of my favorite Indians. And I, and I think that goes to show that, you know. Albemarle Street. Jim Carter, Albemarle, Albemarle Street. I think it goes to show as well that, you know, just because it's an, an Indian restaurant, it doesn't uh, have to be, you know, cheap like your. Local curry house yeah. because you know he uses lots of great ingredients, uh, lots of game, like game yeah. And, and uh, the thing I like about it, it's not uh, fancy Indian food. There are some sort of modern Indian restaurants, if you like, that you know, for me they it's too refined and you don't really get the the proper sense of Indian cuisine. Whereas Jim Carner, you know, you get a very good curry served in a nice silver dish or copper dish. Uh, and it's, you know, very authentic.
0: But there's also a sense there, as I think in your restaurants as well, that it's not just the food, it's the warmth of the place. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredibly yeah. important. The design is good, it? isn't it? And yeah, the, the design is good, but they even do
1: old pewter tankards for their yeah. beer and things and you can eat at the bar and yeah. you know, so it's, it's it's modern in a sort of comfortable way, I think. Yeah, yeah
0: and the interior is more flexible. Yeah. yeah. You know, you wouldn't it wouldn't used know to be very rigid, didn't it? You you were told flop wallpaper. Yeah, but just in restaurants in general, you know, there was a bar where you had to sit. Then you were taken through. You know, now you you as the customer are much more in charge of the restaurant space. Yeah. Uh, Eating at counters is a very new phenomenon, and people often say to me, you know, how (coughs) how do you get into a, a a restaurant when it's just opened? And I remember one thing to do is to go in and always try and sit at the counter. You know, and introduce yourself to the staff. Yeah. You know, and give them your business card. Get their business card. And and because when new restaurants have a table available, they don't want to give it to somebody who they'll never see again. Mm. You know, they want they want to cultivate regular customers <coughs> as much as regular customers wanted to be welcomed by the restaurant. I never use it. I never use it. No, no, but thank you. Huh? No, but if you go in and you introduce yourself, then I, th- I think it. Because what happens to new restaurants after a while is that they become yesterday's restaurants. But they've signed a 10, a 15, or a 20 year lease. Uh, huh?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. But that, you know, but that Soho thing that we we're talking about is, um, you know, our, our lunch business has sort of dropped off in the last um, few months, uh, and you sort of scratch your head and you think, you know, why well, lunch has dropped off, but then then you count the amount of new restaurants that have, opened, have opened, and the, the choice around, and that's the reason. It's not because people have stopped coming to you, it's because there's more choice. I remember at the Caprice, when there was only a handful of probably restaurants in London that you would... Talk about or go to, and Quaglino's was about open. to open. With how many seats? Two hundred and 50. fifty seats. And we all thought to ourselves, you know, wh- where are these people going to come from? You know, and Capri still stayed busy. Uh, Quaglino's was busy. Yeah. And I think you know, and that's I think where we've got to today. What you touched on earlier is that there's more restaurants opening and there's more people eating out. It's a bit more like New York where people you know, don't cook at home as much. Yeah,
0: uh, and that was an era... I don't know if anybody other than Jansis knows what a TBL was. A TBL was something that used to be, exist. It was called a two-bottle lunch. <laughs> but those, those don't exist anymore, do <coughs> no, they? No, very huh? rarely.
1: <coughs> you, know, like, you might have a one-glass lunch. but Yeah, N- NBL. Huh? Or, or, or it goes the other way, where they stay until dinner. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, John. How conscious are you as a restaurateur of noise, absence of,
1: level of, hard surfaces? And well, good, yeah, good question. Because In Soho, in my Soho restaurant, I've just um, it's always been quite noisy. And before you open a restaurant, you never quite know, you know what the noise levels are going to be like. Uh, and th- there's quite a few hard surfaces in the Soho restaurant. And it's quite noisy. And friends of mine, you know, I say, you've not been in for a while. I said, no, you know, it's quite a noisy restaurant to do a business lunch in. And and this is why the customer's views are very important, I think. So I've I've just recently put tablecloths in, which is one element of, you Mm. know, reducing noise bouncing around. So I'm I'm, I'm doing sort of small things to uh, try and eradicate, you know, the noise and soften it a bit. I would be one who sometimes I'm eating well and enjoying it. Yeah. <coughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just doing a few things. Like, so the tablecloths, we've measured the decibels and it's dropped slightly. The next thing might be to put some you know, panels in. Our architects never yeah. understand. No, they don't. They never anticipate it, but this is not their fault. I think it's very difficult to anticipate what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot, of the, um, a lot of the people that used to use the Ivy, for example, who have been in a few times, and uh, I sort of called them after, I said, you know, I'm not seen you for a while. And it's because of that, you know, it's because they, they, they can't have a proper business meeting. Whereas in the Ivy, you know, the, the tables were this far apart, weren't they? Yeah. So there'd be someone doing business there and someone doing business there, but it didn't seem to, to bother anyone. Because uh, it was a powerful place to to sort of do business over lunch, but when I opened the tram shed, interestingly, because it was such a big, vast building with tiles and industrial, I had to do quite a few things, but I couldn't afford to do all of them. So I'd, we we decided to put false um, uh, um ceiling uh, panels. Uh, what are they called? <laughs> Soundproof Acu- acoustic f- sort of panels. Acoustic panels in, and. I had to do underfloor heating. Uh, and then the third thing that was in the balance was to put air conditioning. So I thought, okay, you know, it's quite expensive to do air conditioning, acoustic panels, underfloor heating. So we left out the air conditioning, and, but we put the services in but didn't sort of connect it up. So, of course, in the, and it's got a big glass roof. And, of course, the first year we opened, in the summer, it like a bloody greenhouse in there, you know, so I had the acoustic thing sorted. I had the heating <laughs> sorted, but... The air conditioning wasn't sorted, so we had to spend another, you know, hundred thousand pounds or something to do, to you know, properly connect up. So you don't know, until you open, you know? It, it could have been the other way. It could have, We knew it would be quite cold in there, so the underfloor heating was, was a must. Absolutely vital. The soundproofing was a, you know, a maybe, but uh, the aircon. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but you never know. You never know. And you can go really over the top. Uh, on how much you spend in a restaurant. I mean, when we did the tramshed, you know, some some restaurateurs would have spent four or five million pounds on that, mm. and
0: uh, which has to be reflected in the menu prices. Yeah,
1: yeah, because that's the only way. you'll And we just couldn't afford to do that. So you, you have to. I mean, in, in the Soho restaurant, with um, the previous owner spending, you know, three million plus pounds on it. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> What's justified? Well, different restaurants have different philosophy on how much they should mark up wine. I mean, uh, our philosophy, you know, uh, general rule of thumb, it's, you know, if it's a, a bottle that costs you a tenner, you know, you, it would end up on the wine list as you know thirty odd quid maybe. But what we do is the higher the higher end wines, we don't mark up. It's more of a cash profit. Uh, so, I, and I, I think, you know, there, there are a few restaurants that do that, um, but, it, the, but the customer should, for me, the customer should benefit from a high-end bottle of wine by getting it out of, you know, they shouldn't, you know, I, I don't think it's justified, Market something that costs you 100 quid, you know, you don't want to be charging 300 quid, you know, you can, you can even charge 150 quid if you yeah. want, because, you know, there's more profit on that than there is, and also you're giving the customer a good experience. Really? Blimey. Mm. That's not good. Yeah. yeah, house wine is interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have a house wine as such. Well, we do have a house I wine. I thought Chateau
0: Margaux was your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why you were there yesterday, just exactly. checking up on it. Yeah.
1: You're a very selfless man. <laughs> But in, you know, we, we do have a house wine, which has our own label, but it's not the cheapest wine on the list. So I think you know some restaurants that in the old days, you know, you would have house. No, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also the clever thing, yeah, and the clever thing in a restaurant is not to have wines on your list that everyone else has got or you can buy in a supermarket, Uh, because people, it's very, it's very easy for a customer, you know, to say I've seen that Pinot Grigio in Tesco's or whatever, you know. And how can you charge that much money for (laughs) it? Yeah.
0: Without going on wine. What's your
1: view, Francis? I'm observing more and more wine producers around the world producing two two parallel ranges of wines. Mm. Um, Actually, pretty identical. But that one is aimed at the old trade, and that one's aimed at the old trade. (coughs) Yeah. Mm. And in fact, well, actually, Chateau Margaux have exactly done that, haven't they, with that... That, that, um, the, you know, the cheaper end Margot that they've done, which is... Relatively. Relative, well, relatively, yeah, yeah. But it's under... We flog it for 90 quid or whatever. But but, I, th- I, th- but that, I think that Margot is sort of aimed at the... Um, uh, the guys going back to the office and saying, oh, we had three bottles of Chateau Margot for lunch <laughs> and showing off to their mates. You know. Yeah.
0: Um, we're almost... The end of which I, what I hope has been a very enjoyable hour and a half. Could you pinpoint a moment in your very illustrious career that's given you the most pleasure as a chef or a restaurateur?
1: Oh, that's a question.
0: <laughs> that's why I kept it to the end. I know. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd have walked out, and that would have been—we'd have been sitting here with um, nobody to
1: talk to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know really. I, I think certainly the best decision I made was to go out on my own because it's very... I think in the restaurant business, as a you know front of house or back of house person, you know, staying in... You know, I, I, was, I was in a... When I worked for the Caprice Group, you know, it was a kind of great job. It was financially, it was comfortable. But sticking my neck out to, you know, putting everything on the line to do your own business is a big... You know, it's a big risk to take, especially when you haven't got someone behind you that's actually writing out the checks. Uh and I sort of look back now and think, you know, okay, I've not I've not made any money out of having my own business, but I I've kind of I'm my own man, if you like. Uh so I think, you know, making that decision to sort of do my own thing was probably the best. Uh the other no, no, the thing is in the restaurants, you never, you, you don't end up doing that. You end up reinvesting it yeah. in the restaurant. That always happens because something breaks down or something crops up or a new restaurant comes on the market. Um, oh, and the other thing is probably beating Richard Corrigan in the Great British Menu. <laughs> 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 well <done. laughs> Yes? It's a very good question. People ask me that all the time. I don't know, I... I I think it depends what mood I'm in, you know. Say we have a restaurant in Selfridges, for example, which is the, by the way, it's, it's the only um, non-British restaurant. So I went off piste for that little bit. So you can have a bowl of pasta or a risotto. Um, so I- if I'm in that sort of area shopping and I, you know, I don't want to eat um, off my other menus. But I, I, I don't know. It, it sort of, yeah, depends where I, I am in London. Obviously, Dorset, I always look forward to going to Dorset uh, and you know it's all fish and not always sunshine <laughs> do you work for the Inland Revenue? no <laughs> <laughs> Do you no. work for the Inland <laughs> Revenue, Mark? Would. No, good. We just cleared that up. That's fine. Uh, you, you yes. Make a contribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you have to run it like that because um, if, if, if you sort of just throw it all into the pot, you don't realise, you know, if one... One's losing 800,000 yeah, pounds after you, eight months. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And also, when you when you open, you know, more than one, two, or three restaurants, you actually set them up as different um, businesses as well. For that reason, because if one does fail, you mm. know, you, you don't take the others with it, and that's you know, sort of fairly normal practice these days. And also, the bank won't lend you the money if you don't do that. Sometimes, you know, so it's kind of you know.
0: And there are quite there are at least two or three companies that I know of that just specialise in restaurant accountancy, don't they? Yeah. I mean, Ratnash, as as well as looking after being an investor, shareholder, he also runs a company that other restaurateurs can go to, and they get very... Because in the old days, it was always that that was... Any restaurant's Achilles heel,
1: wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so many... That and the wine. Yeah. (laughs) But that's good that um, my business partner looks after other restaurants because I can see how much money they're making (laughs) as well and compare it. But be, be, you'll, you'll be amazed the amount of restaurants that do open, you know, and quite well-known people that you know don't have a clue from week to week, you know, what their bottom line or how the restaurants trading profit-wise and stuff. Uh, and, and people do open. <laughs> you know, I, I know people that have opened restaurants without having any cash flow forecasts mm. or anything going forward, and then six months down the line, they suddenly realise they've lost a shedload of money. Mm. You know, so. You know, having that financial side, and I think you know that's w- that's quite an important thing. You know, because coming from a sort of chef background, you know, you don't tend to get too much involved in the business side of it. Um, so, but having your own business, you know, you, you have to do it concentrates that. Concentrate your yeah, mind, doesn't you it? Got to do that, yeah. How do you keep your
0: standards up without spreading yourself too thin?
1: Between your- yeah, I mean that that's always that's always a constant. You know, whether you have one restaurant or seven restaurants or 20 restaurants, you know, it's about employing the right people. (coughs) Keeping, uh, you know, there's all sorts of systems. Such as Kevin. Uh, Such as Kevin, yep. Uh, So Kevin's worked for me for 17 or 18 years and having people like that, uh, you know, help with the consistency an awful lot. Uh, Because, you know, constant staff change is really the, the sort of problem with consistency. Uh, and ha- and having you know little systems behind the scenes that the customer never knows about you know like having certain specifications for certain things so you know a piece of fish doesn't come into the building unless it's a certain weight size whatever uh, different quality control aspects uh, that all sort of add up to the consistency you know so when you when you call your supplier and you just order asparagus, you know, you want your asparagus to come from one particular farm instead of Peru or Spain. So, you know, yeah, so you have to be tough on the consistency thing. And obviously, you know, the the staffing is crucial. Well, we've managed managed it.
0: We did. An hour and a half. With only one glass of wine. With only one glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for coming along and thank you, Mark Hicks, for terrific. Pleasure. (laughs) Hold on, thank you.
1: What what does the rest of the day hold? (laughs) I've got to do another art. Have you?